If you would uh, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and uh, we will pick up this morning in John chapter 1. Last week, kind of in our introduction to the Gospel of John, we looked at the human author, at John himself, understood a little bit about his life, uh, and we also looked at the purpose statement for the Gospel of John, which actually comes from chapter 20, near the end of the book, John 20, verses 30 and 31, where John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the Gospel of John is urging us to look at Jesus. John is writing to, to direct our attention to Jesus Christ, in particular to see his miracles and his teachings and his actions, to see Jesus so that we might see who he is, who he claims to be, and how his signs authenticate who he is, how they demonstrate and prove that he is the Son of God, the Christ or the Messiah as promised by the Old Testament to the Jewish people the one who would come and who would save his people from their sins. So we are here to see Jesus from the account of an eyewitness, from John, trying to understand better who Jesus is. And today, he's going to introduce us to Jesus in the sense of three key relationships. Let me just outline those for you. It'll kind of be our outline for these first five verses. Jesus in relation to God, Jesus is God. Jesus, in relation to creation, Jesus is the creator. All things come into being by him. And finally, in relation to sin and death, Jesus is the overcomer. So those are the three things we're going to see this morning. Jesus is God. Jesus is creator. Jesus is the overcomer. When you look at the Gospels, Matthew and Luke start with the, the birth of Jesus Christ. We, we look at them during the Advent season when we see the incarnation of Christ and what leads up to that. Mark steps in right in the adult life of Jesus Christ, his baptism, his temptation, right on into his preaching the gospel of God, he says in Mark 1.14. John precedes them all. In terms of chronology or history, John sort of takes us back even further and John 1.1 1, 1 starts off, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning. Any Jew who knew their Old Testament heard something familiar in that phrasing, in the beginning. The Hebrew Old Testament books are often named from the first word or two of the book. And, and so Bereshit is the name for the first book in the Hebrew Bible, and it is in the beginning. That's Hebrew for in the beginning. Just a simple way of naming it. Take those first few words and make that the name of the book. So when John says, in the beginning, it clearly sets off some alarm bells for his readers, that he's talking about something that the Bible starts with in the beginning. It's obviously part of his thinking to take them back to what Moses first wrote, and kind of grab their attention that way, with one key difference. Moses takes the beginning as being the beginning of human history, the beginning of created history, if you will, the creation of the universe and then the creation of man. And Moses moves forward from that beginning point, and history unfolds then as a work of God. John actually takes in the beginning and sort of moves back just a little bit to remind us that there was more in place before that beginning point. There was already one who was existing 
And he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was already in existence when the uh, history began, in, in, in our sense of history, our knowledge of history. Something or someone was there, and he calls him the Word. The name of Jesus doesn't show up until verse 17. We have to work our way through some text to get down to seeing who this word is. And in verses 14 and 17, he makes the connections for us. If you look at those verses for just a moment, John 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we have the word becoming a man, being marked by grace and truth, verse 17 for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we, we have to follow John a little ways to understand who he's describing by this word, who he means, but he, he gets us to that place of seeing that the word is Jesus. Now in the, the Greek, the, the word there for the word is logos. You've probably heard that word at some time or another, the logos. And it's a word that comes with some baggage to it at that point in history. We, we look at something like the word, and we can sort of try to imagine what that means. But for those in the first century, it, it had some interesting history to it. It also is something that John uses frequently to describe Jesus Christ. Uh, just a, a few different reference points of John talking about the word and, and what he means by it. In John chapter 3, if you want to turn there for a moment... John the Baptist is speaking. John who baptized Jesus is talking to his own followers and he's saying to them, I am not the Christ. I am not the one who was sent to be the Savior. And he begins to explain who Jesus was as being sent from God. And John 3.34 says, For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So there's John the Baptist saying, Jesus speaks the words of God. What you hear from him is, is as if you are listening to God. Later on in John chapter 4, Jesus has preached in a Samaritan village, and John 4.41 says, many more believed because of his word, because of what he proclaimed. goes on to say, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. As Jesus spoke... God used that to open the eyes of the blind, to save unbelievers, to deliver them from sin and death, as Jesus proclaimed the word of God, that truth. John 5, 24, if you'd take a look over there for just a moment, Jesus speaking. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Again, John recording for us, Jesus speaking about, listen to my word. If you will put your faith and trust in what I say, this proclamation of truth, it will deliver you from sin and death. In verse 38, just a little bit later in that chapter, and again it says, um, and you do not have his word abiding, and you speaking to those who are not believing, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Those who do not Take the word of Christ, trusting in him, believing that word, resting in that word. He says, do not abide in me. Do not have a relationship with me. Another spot, John 6, verse 63. John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Again, Jesus saying, 
mine is not just some ordinary teaching, not just some wise things. The words that I speak to you actually have the power to transform you, to give you life, to bring you to salvation. And, and in fact, that so resonates with the disciples that just a moment later, as, as other people are scattering and they're not interested in Jesus and they're not following, and Jesus looks at the disciples and says, do you guys want to go too? And Peter responds and says in verse 68, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. What you're speaking will save us. So why would we go anywhere else? One last uh, reference from the Gospel of John, and there are many, but just again to show you what's in John's mind when he starts off by saying, in the beginning was the Word. John 8, 31, Jesus said, If you abide in my Word, you are truly my disciples. And John 8, 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my Word, he will never see death. Jesus is the life-giving word of truth. Who he is, what he does, what he proclaims, this is the word. This is expressing God to man. When John writes 1 John later on, and he begins 1 John, he begins it in, in a very similar way to the way he begins the Gospel of John. 1 John 1.1 says, That which was from the beginning, so he's going back again, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. What he's saying in 1 John is, I'm still talking about Jesus. I'm still talking about the one who I've seen and heard, and I want to testify to him. He is the word of life. He is the one who will save you if you will listen to him, if you will believe him. One last spot. John is, we believe, the human author of the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And in Revelation 19, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And so when John says, in the beginning was the Word, he is saying, this is the expression of God. When you see Jesus, you see God. And over and over again, he will use this term, the Word, to communicate to them that this is, you are, you are seeing God when you see Jesus. Now, the other thing that I mentioned to you is, there is there's some history that goes into this Word, particularly in the first century. We see it and we go, okay, I get it from the Old Testament. It often talked about the Word of God. We see John talking about Jesus being the Word. But that phrase, the logos, has some history to it in terms of philosophy. You could go back about 500 years before the time of Christ and find philosophers who would argue that the Word, the logos, was some sort of animating power in the universe. They used that term to describe the equivalent, I guess I could give you for those of you who are Star Wars buffs, is, you know, the force, you know, that, that, that we might use. Well, they would say the word, and people would go, oh, so that's sort of this, this powerful thing, this animating thing in, in, that animates life, that gives life. Philo was a philosopher who was, lived at virtually the same time as Jesus, was born just shortly before Jesus was, and used the Logos often in his writings to describe this impersonal, controlling power in the universe that God used to create man. To, it, it was a force that linked God and man. 
So when Philo writes that, the, the logos is not God, but it's the force God uses. It's called the logos. Now, Philo wrote extensively, used that term, the word, about 1,300 times in his writings. And so the Greeks and Jews of that day who were influenced by that knew that there was something unusual about this word. This word logos didn't just mean a spoken word, but it had some sort of connection to, to something greater than them. And they, so the average person who heard the logos may not have understood it completely or clearly, but knew that it was something that transcended the norm. The logos is something unique and powerful and influential in the universe. That's the term that John takes and transforms. That's sort of the, 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 the reach into culture to take something that people had heard and knew, to take it as well from the Old Testament, where it speaks repeatedly of the Word of God, and now adapt it and, and cause people to stop and take notice and say, I'll tell you who the Word is. It's not a force. It's a person. In the beginning was the Word. Some of you may have seen, if you, uh, if you like Desiring God on Facebook, you may have seen a post this week by John Piper about um, John 1 and particularly the, the word I, I saw, I think it was Wednesday, they put it on and I saw that video and I thought, I should just put that up on Sunday. It's about seven minutes long and it pretty well covered it uh, in, in great form, which maybe, I'm, maybe that means I say too much. Um, but Piper said, here's a quote from what Piper said, what God had to say to the world at the fullness of time in other words, at the coming of Christ, what God had to say to the world at the fullness of time was not only what Jesus said, but also who Jesus was and what he did. Jesus, the person, in his teaching, in his signs, in his actions, in his ministry to people, in his leadership, all of that encompasses this title of the word, and all of that is God's truth being proclaimed to man. All of that is, look at this, and you see God. You hear God. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Again, when you hear from Jesus, you're hearing God's truth revealed. So, in the beginning, back in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. At the dawn of creation, at the starting point for you and I in terms of history, at the origin of the universe, the Word is already there. John is taking us to that point and then looking back. The Word did not come into being at that point. The Word was already present and, in fact, was involved in creation, as we'll see in a moment. He was pre-existent. John is stating what Jesus himself will say and, and will generate opposition to Jesus. Jesus in John 8:58 said to a crowd, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Am. That is a profound statement, and, and we know in John 8 that they then picked up stones to stone him because they understood what Jesus was saying at that point. He was taking a name for God from the book of Exodus. Remember when Moses is standing before the burning bush, and he's, you know, he's going to be sent to the Hebrew slaves in Egypt, and he's like, how, what authority do I say this on? How do I go to them? Who do I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. Self-existent God. Beyond that, when Jesus says it in John 8, he's saying, he's saying before Abraham was, which was 2,000 years earlier, I am. Jesus was laying claim to being self-existent God. In the beginning was the Word. 
So let's read these first five verses of John 1, and we'll, we'll look at all of these for the rest of our time this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If only we could go back and read this again for a first time. We are so familiar with these verses in some ways that we sort of lose the, the excitement that should come through in verses like this in, in what John is saying. This is a dramatic portion of Scripture. Not only was the word preexistent before creation came into being, but verse 1 is one of the most shocking and profound ways that any book of the Bible begins when it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That is a dramatic statement. John is saying, first of all, that this word, who is, as he, he identifies later, Jesus Christ, he is with God. He doesn't use the ordinary Greek preposition for with, as in you could just say, well, they're sort of contemporaneous, but rather it's a word that means toward or facing. It's the idea of relationship. It, it's closeness. They are looking at each other. They are as close as one can get and, and still be distinct, and he's really making both of those points there about the closeness and proximity, but also maintaining that the two still are two persons, God the Father and God the Son. And, and that's important because the next phrase is, and the word was God. He's not wanting to create confusion here. He's trying to say, these two are facing each other, and they are both God. It is God the Father, and it is God the Son. In close proximity to one another, and yet distinct. This isn't God taking on different forms. This is two persons who are both God. We're seeing kind of a, a, a little hint here of the Trinity. More to come still on the Spirit later. But John distinguishes the two and then unites the two. In the Greek, this second phrase, the word was God. Actually, in the Greek, it reads, God was the word. John writes that in such a way that the word is still the subject, but he does that to make emphasis. They didn't have the capacity in the Greek of that day to bold, underline, exclamation point, any of that. The way you emphasized was word order. And so you, you put the word that you really wanted to hit people with at the beginning. And so by saying God was the word and the word is still the subject, what he's saying is this is how John would communicate in, in the best way possible in bold print with exclamation points. This word was actually God. It is a stunning statement for his readers that that this word, this Jesus Christ, is not some mere prophet, not some sent messenger, not some apostle, but is actually God. And he, he phrases it that way and structures it that way to keep it from being watered down, which is, by the way, the very thing that the Jehovah's Witness do in John 1.1 1, 1, when they translate it and say, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was a God. You can't do that. Any good Greek grammarian will argue that the structure doesn't allow you to do that and that there's a Greek word that would just speak of divinity if he wanted to say something lesser and, and put Jesus in sort of a class of, of divinity but not make him God. It was a different word that he would have used. John's point is to say, no, this, this, he is God. You, you worship God, right? You know who God is. Well, the word is God. C.K. Barrett has written on this, John intends that the whole of the gospel 
shall be read in the light of this verse. The deeds and the words of Jesus are the deeds and the words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. It's very clear that this is what Jesus will say, and it is a completely untenable claim if Jesus is not fully God. It is indeed, as Barrett says, it's blasphemy. The, the, the whole book is blasphemy because the whole book starts on this premise and argues this premise over and over that Jesus Christ is God. And he moves on from there to give us just this breathtaking description of the word. Not only does he exist alongside God in eternity past, but he actually is God. And in case that's difficult for his readers to comprehend, verse 2, he sort of reiterates again and says, he was in the beginning with God. It's for the reader who after reading verse 1 goes, wait, are you saying that this Jesus is, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. This word is with God. He is preexistent. He is God. He's not the sum total of God because he is with God the Father as well and therefore distinct from the Father, but he is eternal God. The implication of that for you and I is when we get down to verse 14 and it says the word became flesh, it says to us that this Jesus Christ, this one who was born in Bethlehem, who came out of Nazareth, who taught, who ministered around Galilee, that he is God and is fully deserving of our worship. He is fully deserving of us bowing before him and seeing him as fully God. Verse 3, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. One NASA astronomer has said that in the Milky Way in our galaxy, there's about a trillion stars. I've seen numbers from hundreds of billions to, to a trillion. Another astronomer says that there's probably about 100 billion galaxies in the universe. So take ours and just blow that up as, as to how many. Now, all of that is man in sort of feeble, small man kind of way trying to comprehend the incomprehensible and say it, it, it is beyond our understanding how enormous it is. The truth that we do know is Jesus made it all. That every single star, however hundreds of billions or number that we can't even get to, Jesus made them all. And that's, he just hammers that point here and says, in relationship to creation, Jesus' relation to creation is simple. He created everything. He made it. And when his reader responds and says, wait, are you saying Jesus made everything? He responds in the last part of that verse and says, well, without him was not anything made that was made. There, there's nothing that's been brought into existence that wasn't from God working through Jesus Christ, God the Father through the instrument of the Son, Jesus Christ, in calling that into existence. Paul echoes that in Colossians 1, all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, were created through him and for him. And John in Revelation, spells out the chief implication of this. It's a verse that those of you who are in the invest class are, are memorizing, Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. John's argument there in Revelation, as he's beginning to, to enter into this argument here in John 1, is... This Jesus, fully God, brought you into existence. He created you, and therefore, he is worthy of power and glory and honor. He is worthy 
of our worship. Jesus has made you. You are his handiwork. And if we are made by God and we are held together in this moment and sustained by him and cannot exist apart from him, then the implication of that is we owe our lives to him. That he is the one who is deserving of our our worship and our trust, our holding in awe. He has the right to rule over mankind. If he has made you, doesn't he have the right to be Lord of your life? You can try to run from his authority or dismiss it and, and dismiss Scripture, but that doesn't change the truth of God's word that says Jesus is the creator. Then verse 4, in him was life. He's carrying on that creation theme. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We go back for a moment, not long after the first in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. God has created everything, this universe. It is very good, it says at the end of creation. It is this marvelous, wonderful creation. And we get into Genesis chapter 3, and what happens? Sin enters. Man rebels against God. The, the, Ryan and I were talking about this during the, the break between services. The very thing that the Jewish leaders went after Jesus for, which was claiming to be God, is exactly the sin that begins the fall, which was man wanting to be God. It was Adam and Eve wanting to think like God and act like God and, and, and have more knowledge so they could be like God. And so sin mars God's creation. Their sin begins with the temptation from the serpent, right, who is the snake, who is Satan, and he tempts them into this place of, you want to know more, you want to be like God, don't you? And so when God steps in after, this, after man has fallen, he, he expresses what Satan has done as sort of a, a first shot in a war of hostility, as, as laying out a, a battle, coming up against God and fighting against God. And it's a battle that he describes in Genesis 3 as culminating between Satan and the offspring of the woman. And so in Genesis 3.15, kind of the earliest glimpse we get of the gospel, God says to the serpent, to Satan, I will put enmity, hostility, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The promise of God after creation fell into sin, after the, the beauty of in the beginning is now marred by sin, the promise of God is that ultimately a child would be born, a son would be born, and that son would ultimately be in this battle, if you will, with Satan, but it's not much of a battle because all Satan will ever be capable of doing is striking at the heel of Jesus. Jesus will strike him in the head. Jesus will, will, will score the wound that defeats Satan. Jesus will be the victorious one. Jesus is that promised offspring from Genesis chapter 3. He is that Messiah, that, that offspring who will come and who will deliver his people and who will be victorious. This description here in verses 4 and 5 is, is just kind of a progression. In him was life. We've already seen he is the creator of life, the one who provides life. But it's not just physical life. It's also the giver of eternal life spiritual life. In the word was life. In order to be the creator of life, he himself must be the fountain of life. But John, when he goes from here, after, from this point on, he'll use that word life about 50 times in his gospel and almost always be referring to eternal spiritual life. There is physical life, which you and I have as we take breath, uh, 
as we live here now, and then we die. And when we die, our soul will continue to live on. Jesus is the giver of that life, that eternal life in the presence of God. If we will trust in him, there is life that goes beyond this life. The point here is ultimately Jesus is the source of all life. It's the same thing we saw in the purpose statement in John chapter 20. That, that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. As John says from beginning to end, I, I am showing you Jesus. I am showing you the word so that you will believe and that you will have life. The word who said in John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So here in John 1, Jesus is this source of life, and he also is the one who illuminates it as well. It says the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. This light-darkness theme will come up often in John. If you go down to verse 8 for a minute, again talking about John the Baptist, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. This dominant theme that we're going to see is Jesus is not only the word, the expression of God is not only the one through whom creation is brought into existence, but he is the light expressing this victory by God over a world that is darkened by sin. Throughout scripture, the light and darkness theme is to stress God against the evil of, of man and of Satan. John eight twelve. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If we will trust in Jesus, we receive his light. It overcomes the darkness. It says essentially the same thing in John 12, 46, that Jesus is the light, darkness is evil. Then John 3, 19, one of the verses we'll get to in, in memorizing, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John's Old Testament readers completely understood this because they had seen it frequently in the Old Testament that there is darkness, that, that the world is cast into darkness, and that it needs light. It needs God to come in and to save, and that is what Jesus brings. Just a couple of Old Testament references just to show us again that what was in the Jewish thinking at this point. Psalm 82.5, the wicked walk about in darkness. Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. So the relationship here now is uh, of Jesus to evil. We've seen what is the relationship of Jesus to God? He is God. What is the relationship of Jesus to creation? He is the creator. Now the question is what is the relationship of Jesus to to evil. And this final one is Jesus is the overcomer. The word is the true light that comes forth into the darkness and shines. It's interesting that all of the verbs previously were past tense until you get to verse 5. The light shines is a present tense verb. In other words, this is, he not only shone then when he came in to, and, and at the incarnation, but he continues to shine. He continues to be the light who shines in a dark world. Jesus Christ shines that light of deliverance. Not only does he shine, but he defeats the darkness. It says there at the end of verse 5, the darkness has not overcome it. Some of you might have comprehend it, that darkness does not comprehend it. The Greek word is katalambao. There we go, sorry. 
And it, it could either mean seize or grasp. So it could have the idea of comprehend something in the sense of grasp it, but it's also seize or grasp in the sense of overpower, sense of overcome, of, of laying hold of something. And so what it says here is darkness has not overcome it. Satan from the beginning of the ministry, Satan from the, the birth of Jesus Christ is bent on the destruction of Jesus Christ. That's why we see the, the murder of baby boys in Bethlehem. It is an attempt to destroy Jesus Christ. That's why we see people who pick up stones to want to kill Jesus Christ for what he claims. That's why the crowd is screaming, crucify him, when it makes no sense. Because it is Satan seeking to overcome the light. It is this bent on destruction of destroying the one who is the light, of not just defeating, but of overcoming and, and canceling out the light, of doing away with the light. Want it to destroy it, and Satan does, because he wants to leave the world stumbling in darkness and lost in sin. In John 12, 35, it says, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Jesus Christ is the light. In a world that is darkened by sin, Jesus Christ comes and brings hope and deliverance and light, and evil cannot overcome him. It cannot defeat Jesus Christ. One of the verses that we often see at Christmas time during the Advent season, we put on our Christmas cards, one of the, the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 9:2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, right? Those living in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah is writing that 700 years before Christ and saying, this nation has been plunged into darkness. And, and it is being punished because of its rebellion and its idolatry and its turning from God. And this nation is in darkness in need of light. And there is one coming who will shine the light of that deliverance and that rescue. There is a Messiah who is coming who is promised. All of us enter life in spiritual darkness. You began life in a hostile position to God and in darkness and in need of, of light. Paul said in Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He's talking to believers there, but saying at one time you were all in the dark. And when we are in the dark, when it's the middle of the night and the power has gone out and we're stumbling around, we need a, a flashlight or a candle or something. We need something to illuminate the room so that we can see what we are doing. Jesus Christ is that light. And John is introducing him to us as being fully God, as being the creator to whom we owe allegiance, and as being the one who will be struck at repeatedly by evil, but it will never overcome him because he defeats sin and death. And it's on that basis that John will come and say, won't you trust in him and have life he has come to give you life. He has come to overcome the darkness in your life. He has come to defeat the sin in your life. Won't you trust him? By believing his name, you might have life in his name. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that into a creation 
that rebelled against you and sinned against you, that you in love and grace sent your son to come into this creation in order to rescue sinners, in order to rescue us from our own lostness in darkness. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for though being God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but gave up all of the all of the trappings and honors and glory of being God in heaven in order to come and walk on earth and to be rejected and spit on and crucified, to demonstrate ultimately in your rising from the dead that death could not overcome you, the grave could not hold you, that, Lord Jesus, you are the Savior, Creator, and Overcomer. Lord, I pray that as we set out on a new week, that this would be a, a week in which we are reminded again and again of, of how wonderful our salvation is, of how great our Savior is, that we would marvel again at these truths that for many here, these are truths they've read many times before, but give us a, a, again a sense of awe at who Jesus is and what he has done in our place. And Lord, if there's anyone this morning here not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, might this be the day when when their eyes would be opened to him, that, Lord, you would draw them from out of darkness and into light to believe that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, the one who came as the Son of God to give his life in the place of sinners and to bear our punishment that we deserve. Lord, thank you for this eyewitness testimony that you have handed down and preserved for thousands of years, that we might again come face to face with the living Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in the name of the word that we pray these things. Amen.